Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Christopher Marenghi has made on the Fox transaction uh, here. And we are, you know, you make your luck here at Bloomberg Surveillance, Chris. And we are really honored to have you with the Heritage of Gabelli Funds uh, with us as we look at this asset management transaction. We usually talk to you about media and about the other events within the market. But working with Mario Gabelli day after day, you as a smaller boutique shop are watching the big boys jockey. How do you respond to a mating of these two giants? Yeah, you're right. Obviously, I work for a uh, money manager, uh, a fund manager, and we're seeing the same pressure that they are. Uh, the way funds are bought and sold is changing, and the kind of funds that are bought uh, is changing. And um, scale is important in many cases uh, for these funds, and I think, uh, like many other industries, that's what this transaction is about. The transaction's about equity and also about fixed income. Right. We've had a disinflation. I mean, it used to be you could take a fee off fixed income in a time of 7% CDs or, you know, I remember double-digit annuities. You're, too, you're not old enough to remember that. But the answer is we've squeezed everything down to hundreds of a percentage point. The squeezing can't continue, can it? No, you need to, and you need to surround the client with uh, with a full range of products. Um, you know, I think balanced portfolios, fixed income and, and equities, still make sense, and um, this will allow them to to do that. Chris, where does this ultimately end, though? I, the, the size and scale of some of these businesses is now absolutely enormous. Um, do we end up with just a barbell structure in the asset management industry where you have very, very sort of small niche boutique funds, uh, but, but at the other end of the, uh, the cap scale, you just have absolutely enormous giants? Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, you look at uh, the assets uh, associated with BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard in the multiple trillions, um, but yeah, but I, I do think that it will end up a barbell where you'll have niche firms like ours who are focused on a particular segment of the market with a particular style uh, who will uh, who will try to add value uh, for clients. But if you're in the middle, um, you're probably stuck and you need to find your way to one of those ends. How, just You have to deal with this on a day-to-day basis. How much of this is due to regulation and, and how much to do of this is to do with a kind of passive active story? I, I'm imagining it's a combination of both, but I'm kind of curious as to see where the tipping point is. Yeah, I think it probably has more to do with the secular change in, uh, in the types of funds uh, than regulation. Obviously, regulation has always been an issue. Um, there was certainly over the last uh, 10 years been more regulation associated uh, with this industry. But um, you know, I think that's mostly been digested at this point. Digested within it is the idea of an end of a bull market. It's been a heck of a run, particularly on the equity side. Are we seeing these transactions as people steal for slower times, or is it just part of the mating of structural forces? Yeah, again, I, I think it's just a, a part of the secular change. I'm not willing to call an end to the bull market just yet, um, but um, I think you usually see these uh, uh, toward the the latter half of a, of a bull market. Now, let me line up at the bottom of the uh, presentation. If you're just joining us, Invesco will acquire Oppenheimer funds. I should point out that Bloomberg surveillance has been advantaged by support from both Invesco and Oppenheimer funds over the years. Ardia Partners and Bank of America Merrill Lynch act as his financial advisors to Invesco with uh, legal counsel from Marktel Lipton. Uh, Lazard served as Mass Mutual's financial advisor and legal counsel Simpson 
uh, Thatcher as well. And we'll do much more on this through the day. Invesco to acquire Oppenheimer Funds, a large uh, asset management transaction. Chris Barangi with us here for a number of more minutes, and then we'll come back and really dive into media right now. I want to talk about the brilliance of Rupert Murdoch. We touched on this earlier with television as well, and I think Guy can jump in with a sky angle as well. But Rupert Murdoch just flat out has got to be the courageous dad of the year, right? He spent his He's life, dad of the year. <laughs> yeah, I think his, his children would think so this year. Um, he spent his lifetime building this company, and he looked into the future, and he saw that Fox, as big as it is, probably doesn't have the scale to compete with you know, trillion-dollar companies like Apple and Google and, and Facebook and others, and uh, decided to make the decision that he would um, throw in with Disney, which he did, and he sold the Fox Entertainment assets for a, a very significant premium, up 60% since the first bid in, in uh, December. Also sold Sky for a significant premium, much more than I think most people thought it would ever go for. And uh, they're a beneficiary of that. And they're still in the game with assets. I'm talking about the uh, the asset management barbell. You're seeing a similar kind of barbell situation in media where um, the new Fox, which will consist primarily of the broadcast assets, is not a small company, but they're sort of niche. They're focused mm-hmm. on what they do well, which is news and local sports and entertainment. Do you think he gets back into the game? Do you think I, Murdoch is, uh, as we've just learned, very good at timing? Um, you talked a moment ago about not being sort of willing to call the top of the cycle. Is is Murdoch calling the top of the cycle and he's going to be back when that cycle prevents some, presents some opportunities, do you think? I, again, I don't know that this is as much a cyclical call as a, as a secular call. Uh, and, um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see Fox actually buy back some of the regional sports networks that the Department of Justice is mandating that Fox Entertainment slash Disney is being forced to sell. Uh, that's a business that they know well, and that could be a way that uh, they could bolster their local content assets. We don't know yet what the landscape is going to look like going forwards. Do you think that Murdoch does have an idea? Do you think the assets he's selling at the moment he thinks are yesterday's news rather than tomorrow's news? Well, I think, I think the idea is that increasingly the media world is going to be direct-to-consumer, direct relationship with the consumer, and Disney is building their business for that future uh, with uh, their ESPN product and with Disney Flicks, which should come out uh, in the next year. Uh, and uh, the content assets of Fox allow them to um, bolster that and, and compete better with Netflix, who's the leader in that yeah. market today. Chris Morangi with us. And Chris, I just want to take some time. And you mentioned this name this morning, Google. I mean, we don't, I still don't think we still look at Google as a media company. I know what Amazon's doing and they've got Man in the High Castle and they're trying to do other successes and sort of be Netflixy and I get Netflixy in that. But wither Google in media, are they part of your visibility? Yeah, absolutely. They, they live and breathe advertising dollars. I mean, there's $600 billion globally spent on advertising. Between uh, Google and Facebook, it's about uh, $250 billion. And it's all the marginal gain. I get that. But do they want to do creative? Do they want to do content? Well, they're trying to get into that business via <clears throat> YouTube. And so far, YouTube uh, has been a sort of a Me Too service. They're ba- basically packaging other uh, content into a new over-the-top bundle. They haven't gone down the path yeah. that Hulu has just yet, or Netflix I mean, for that matter, of creating uh, uh, original content, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Can we do, do some market research? Guy, is your family on YouTube more? Because mine is. 
Um, do you know what? I've got two small children and I'm constantly stunned at their interest in YouTube videos exactly. rather than traditional television. I, it is, it is something that they get addicted to very quickly yes. and it's fascinating to watch how that whole and, story and develops John and trying Tucker, to get them off it. Give, give John Tucker, give Guy Johnson some f- a dad dad advice. We need dad advice. Yes, it, it's it doesn't end. free. It's free. We like free, don't we, Guy? Yeah, we have the BBC here. That's free. I also, well, you I, obviously have to pay Netflix for is free in my house because they steal the neighbor's account. <laughs> Why did I not? Wait, biscuit should I have said great. that? No, what's the passcode? Biscuit? Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it shouldn't be that surprising that uh, Google isn't getting into the original content world because they don't. the content they do have, they don't have to pay very much for. Uh, they have a wonderful business, uh, probably one of the best businesses on the planet in the search business and, and YouTube uh, close thereafter. So why get into this competitive uh, arms race for content. Chris, can I just come at this from a European perspective? Google is is obviously in the crosshairs of European regulators. We now find ourselves in a situation where, as a result, they are now forcing um, apps and various other things to be paid for to put them onto phones in Europe. Have European regulators made a mistake here? Because basically they're trying to sort of disaggregate the, the Google business model in Europe. But Google's coming back and saying, that's absolutely fine, but we're going to maintain our margins. And as a result of which, if you want to load all this stuff on to the, for the phone makers, you're going to have to pay for it. And yeah. the consumer will ultimately end up paying for this. Have European regulators made a mistake here? Yeah, I think they might have gone about regulating Google in the wrong way, as you point out. Um, I'm not sure that their solution is the best thing for consumers. Um, you know, Obviously, Google and Facebook and others are in the crosshairs of U.S. regulators as well, and, and we'll see what happens after the election. Um, but uh, clearly, costs are going to go up for both of those companies as they try to comply with privacy regulations and, and prevent additional hacking incidents. Um, but going further and actually disaggregating Google search from some of the buy uh, is, a, is another step, and I'm not sure the regulators are willing to go there just yet. In terms of like, in terms of how you see this earnings season developing, we, we've had the Netflix numbers, and and people kind of kept telling me a few days back, look, if, if Netflix delivers, the rest of the earnings season is looking pretty good. The the Fang stocks are going to uh, once again going to be on the back foot. The the Netflix bounce didn't last long. How should I read that? Yeah, I think Netflix has been viewed this year as somewhat idiosyncratic uh, in that it it is much less in the crosshairs of the regulators, less impacted by sort of macro trends, China, et cetera. Uh, So um, it gets an idiosyncratic bounce. That is, it goes up a bit, but the others don't really follow. Do you have a number one sector buy away from media? Is there there a gabelli with with your study of the shift of growth to value? Where's that opportunity? Yeah, you know, we like we actually like 21st Century Fox today uh, because uh, you know you're paying call it forty five dollars, you're getting thirty eight and change worth of stock, uh, Disney stock in cash, and you're creating new Fox for roughly so seven. So this bucks. is the new Fox. This is new Fox, which consists of Fox News, overwhelmingly Fox News in terms of the cash flows, as well as the the uh, network and local broadcast stations, which are which are quite valuable. It's probably a double. You are taking a little bit of risk, however, in that China approves this deal. Um, and I think it does get approved. Could be some headlines around approval. Probably happens next year. Chris Morangi, thank you so much. And particularly thank you for your comments on the Invesco Oppenheimer Funds transaction. Greatly appreciate that. He is with uh, Gabelli Funds, not only doing media, but doing much, much more as their chief investment officer. Guy, why don't you bring in Florian right now? Do more of an EU angle. 
Well, let's, let's bring in Florian Hentz. He's uh, Berenberg's European economist uh, joining us on the phone. Let's talk a little bit about where the European data is right now, where Italy sits in this whole process. Florian, we're in a situation where I'm watching the United States and the data is is pretty solid. I'm watching Europe and the data seems to be rolling over at the moment. How wide does that economic gap get in your mind? Well, I mean, so far this year, the transatlantic gap has obviously widened with the U.S. having the, the boost from the fiscal stimulus, why we don't have that in the eurozone. Then obviously sort of the, the trade dispute, which has sort of escalated between the U.S. and China, weighing more on an open economy like the eurozone than a relatively closed in, in terms of its sized uh, economy like the U.S., um, so you have a number of issues which sort of um, has caused this this um, gap to arise this year. And um, uh, let's say it, in, in some of this year we thought, okay, that this, this could actually um, close. But as sort of the, the number of risks you mentioned, Italy has actually added to the list, which um, weighs more on sentiment and activity in the eurozone. Um, we don't see that gap closing anytime soon. Is Italy going to be downgraded on the 26th, and if so, by how much, by the uh, the rating agencies? Um, yes, uh, it's very likely that they will downgrade Italy, or if they don't do that, that um, they sort of give a negative outlook. We don't expect them to downgrade Italy by, by two notches, because that was sort of raised a number of questions um, and uh, I think sort of going mm. with one notch and then sort of uh, giving that negative outlook. Just run um, through the implications of two notches for us though because two notches would be a big deal for the ECB. Exactly. I mean that, that would lower Italian bonds um, out of sort of the investment grade um, sphere and that would have consequences like the ECB wouldn't be able to um, when they reinvest um, the bonds next year of their QE program um, to actually reinvest it in Italian bonds. Um, or sort of the liquidity measures basically require um, the the sovereign to have mm-hmm. investment right. grade. I mean, it also depends on other rating agency, but um, yes, uh, w- would have negative consequences. Obviously. Florian, what fascinates me is interview to interview, everybody's telling me Italy's a huge deal. We get the scale of the economy, the importance of Italy, you know, tourism and, and, and all that. I want to know the so what at the end of the year, the so what in the next year of Italy. Is this another soap opera like Brexit, Brussels, London that goes on forever? Or is there sort of an end point where you're going to know what Italy's going to do going forward? Ooh, that's a difficult question. I mean, to some extent, you could say, yes, it could end into a soap opera, um, or it has actually um, been already that kind of soap opera for a couple of uh, months since basically the, the radical government has um, has seized control of the country. Um, but the question is sort of, okay, is it happening now? Is it sort of, um, we've obviously seen spreads widening enormously, but it seems like not to an amount that it would actually affect um, the Italian government to such an extent that they would fold basically to um, the EU and, and, and markets. Um, sort of the bottom line is this, this is sort of an accident waiting to happen. If it's sort of not happening now, um, because sort of we have generally healthy um, uh, growth around the, the globe and, and even in the Eurozone, 
if it's not happening now, I mean, what's happening in three or four years if we yeah. end up in a, in a recession and then sort of Italy would ha- sort of end up in serious trouble? One of, the, one of the questions I think that's critical to ask for investors right now is, can economies take higher rates? And you look at the U.S. economy and you say, yeah, I think the U.S. economy at the moment seems to be able to absorb the higher rates that are coming out of the Fed. And the data continues to be strong. My question is, if we find ourselves with rates going higher in Europe, could Europe, could the Eurozone take higher rates at this point? Uh, probably you would have to say some countries can, others um, will really face a tough time, and that obviously in, in, includes Italy. I mean, at the end of the day, sort of the, the yield that you pay on your debt is, um, you, you can do that as long as sort of the return on yeah. your assets, um, your GDP growth, is actually paying for that. And um, with sort of relatively miserable growth um, throughout the last decades in Italy, obviously higher rates um, to pay down that debt is, is difficult as long as they don't become more competitive, more productive. And I don't see that sort of the, the, right. the radical uh, government is doing anything in that direction, but quite the opposite. Florian Hess, thank you so much with Berenberg Bank this morning. Greatly appreciate it with perspective there on Europe. Guy, we've got a rock star on the observation of Brexit with us right now, don't we? Yeah, Therese Raphael writing a really nice piece talking about um, what U.S. trade rep Robert Lighthizer uh, has been uh, handing to U.K. Brexiteers, which is something of a uh, trade-shaped gift, uh, according to Therese. Um, Effectively, he has uh, sent a letter to Congress um, notifying the Hill that the Trump administration plans to seek a cutting-edge free trade deal with the UK. What exactly would that look like, Therese? Well, that was music to the ears of Brexiters, I wrote, because for the longest time, they've been saying that the big benefit of Brexit will be a global Britain that does bilateral trade deals. What Lighthizer and what the Brexiters are referring to is a bilateral deal that would lower uh, existing tariff barriers. Um, Once Britain leaves the EU, it will be trading with the U.S. on World Trade Organization terms uh, and also looks at a range of non-tariff barriers. and what what we've written today, what I've written today, is that you know getting a deal is not the hard part. Getting a good deal or a deal that that Britain will come away with and and feel that has benefited across the board is much more difficult. Uh, and one of the major obstacles would be is that that this is a zero sum game in some ways. You get a good deal with the states, you don't get a good deal with Europe. Yeah, that's exactly it. So the name of the game in free trade agreements now is not is not really tariff barriers. It's non-tariff barriers, and it's especially regulatory barriers. And there are two regulatory superpowers in the world. There's the U.S. and there's Europe. And they have very different approaches to regulation. So Europe uses this... Um, precautionary principle, which says that, you know, you have to prove that your product or um, isn't harmful. And if you can't prove it, they ban it or they restrict it. And the U.S. has another approach that is more science-based. So the U.K. has to choose. It can't really have it both ways. This is, Guy, can I just say, Therese, that that the way we look at it is simple. Europe's more socialist. We're not. Is London leaving, is the United Kingdom leaving Europe because they're just done with the Socialist Act? I mean, is that all this Brexit, back and forth, leave, remain? Is that all this comes down to? Well, the UK has always been sort of betwixt and between, hasn't yeah. it? I mean, it, you know, it, it is uh, the conservative... That was a Shakespeare the- play, right? <laughs> and... and- 
and I think the I think the the you know the short answer is the UK would like to have it both ways. They will never give up universal health cake care and eat it. They want their cake and eat it. Is there, <laughs> oh, there are lots French. of this, and and so they have to produce fudge. So to keep with the baking analogies, uh, so. But but the trade deal is really where the sort of rubber hits the road, because if they want a comprehensive deal with the U.S., they're going to have to accept chlorine washed chickens and hormone treated beef. And, you know, shock horror. That's something that uh, the, the you know, those are items the EU has has banned. So Britain's going to need to make a decision there. And uh, it's not going to be an easy one. So I think getting a deal fine, getting a comprehensive deal, um, not so easy. And I think we should also remember that you know, in terms of the effect on GDP, trade deals don't you know, they don't provide a major boost. And most of yeah. the UK's trade is with Europe. You know, it's guy, not with the US. Guy, jump in here, but I just want to say betwixt and between off Merriam-Webster. And folks, I can't say <laughs> enough about M- Merriam-Webster trees. That's an that's an American dictionary. I know it's not used <laughs> in the United Kingdom. Can you hear my accent? Yeah. I it, it <laughs> I goes, spent it, a lot of years there. <laughs> yeah, it goes back to 1789 when Adams was backing out of the door with George VIII or Henry VIII, whoever it was. Uh, betwixt and between, back to 1789. Guy, Therese, why would the U.S. do this? Well, the it's, the timing was really interesting here because you know you'd almost want to say that the U.S. was uh, hoping that Theresa May will not concede so much in her negotiations with Brussels that that she can't do a trade deal. So to do a deal. The UK has to leave the customs union, and that's uh, the EU's customs union. That's sort of on the table now. But the US could benefit from it. The US is a very large investor in the UK. Uh, there are a lot of uh, you know UK sectors such as food, um, uh, you know that the that the US would like to see opened. And you know the US is a much bigger partner at, at the table and would likely get its way in a negotiation. So from Lighthizer's point of view, why not? Therese. Thank you very much. Thank indeed. you so Thank much. You. Very nice piece. Therese Raphael Tom, uh, who uh, wrote Trump offers Brexiters a big trade shaped gift. Dana Peterson with us, working with Catherine Mann over at Citigroup. What a pleasure uh, that is. Dana, what is it like walking in every morning and having to deal with one of the giants of trade dynamics? How do you deal with working with Catherine Mann? Uh, she's fantastic. Oh, my goodness. She's she's super bright. She's uh, extremely experienced. Um, she brings a wealth of knowledge uh, to Wall Street uh, that we just highly value. We're so lucky to have her. Um, I don't really know how to follow that, but let me let me try. Um, the, the big story overnight has been the Fed, um, particularly the notes, funnily enough. And that was uh, a little bit of a surprise coming through. I, the, the the market's at two hikes next year. The Fed seems to be pointing at three hikes next year. And I'm kind of wondering what it's going to take to get the market up to three, because the Fed is making it really clear that it's on rails right now and may even go up and above and beyond our star. Yes, absolutely. I think what's going to be important for markets to come along with the Fed is that we see some faster inflation. Indeed, yesterday uh, in the minutes we saw that um, – uh, some participants felt that inflation expectations themselves had to rise. And a number of things we look at, you know, five-year, five-year forwards, um, uh, also the University of Michigan. These measures need to rise uh, before some participants feel comfortable. And I think that's also true for the markets. Um, 
clearly the US economy can take higher rates right now. Where, I, where is the current thinking about where neutral is? If you, if you kind of take a look at the kind of the basic arithmetic, let's say our star's 0.6, inflation's running at 2.3, that takes us up to a kind of 2.93%. Is, is that where we are? Or, or in reality, do you think it's actually a little bit higher than that? I think that um, it's, it's probably in the 275 to 3% range. However, uh, the CBO did upwardly revise its forecast for potential GDP growth. And indeed, some uh, participants yeah. yesterday said, hey, perhaps the economy is running on higher cylinders than we thought. And if that's the case, then the neutral in the short run may actually be higher. And the Fed could think about going even higher than uh, what's already yeah. uh, telegraphed. And Dana, how much of this plays into wage growth? I mean, it's, all, it's great to talk about our stuff. T starred, whatever starred. But the bottom line is we're waiting for real wage inflation. Or is the distribution of the gains going to wages so spread out that it's really not an average number of two point whatever, three percent? I mean, when do we get tangible wage gains for America? Absolutely. What you said about it being uh, spread out in the distribution, certainly at the upper end and the lower end, um, and also in uh, industries that are complaining of of, of labor shortages and skill yeah. shortages, we're seeing wages rise. But we're not seeing wages rise dramatically overall. A lot of that middle, if you will, is, is you know, in, in the government sector. We're not really hearing about any hikes there. And I think that there are also a lot of pressures on wages. Uh, for example, demographics. You have lots of people, roughly 10,000 people retiring per day. They're being replaced with younger, uh, you know, arguably less expensive workers. So that's certainly a downward factor. And just and finally, just looking at inflation itself, it's not rising rapidly and and certainly the strength of the u.s dollar um is a dampener yeah uh, you know guy what's so important here what dana's saying is the 19 days to the midterm elections a lot of people saying a lot of america is not enthused with the tax bill and that there's a lot of people that were supposed to be excited about the tax bill and they're not because they're not seeing the benefits. Dana, I think your you know comments on wage distribution here are a huge deal. I, I mean, it's 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 unevenly distributed, right? Well, absolutely in terms of wage increases. But I think the good news is that post-tax reform and even in the last few weeks, a number of businesses have said they're looking at raising wages for their least expensive workers. Uh, so that's certainly a positive for folks who are at the lower end of the income spectrum. Yeah. Um, and I think that in terms of the tax reform, when we look at uh, where people are spending, it's actually pretty consistent with what you'd see in a rise in after-tax income. Um, and I think, unfortunately, you know, all the other things that we see in the news are somewhat of a distraction of the fact that, yes, we are seeing the tax reform uh, increase consumption overall, but the question is, you know, for each individual, are they feeling it? Dana Peterson, thank you so much for Citigroup today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.